fact, hopefully by now, um, you're starting to see how the Bible is a tale of two cities, the city of God, the city of man, and you're starting to understand um, what the city of God is and what the city of man is. And the thing that we're going to look at today, I feel like, is make or break. If we're really going to be the city of God, I think we're stepping into the key to the whole deal. And uh, let's turn to Acts chapter 2. Let's stand for the reading of God's word. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Who's they, by the way? Well, you got the disciples. How many are the disciples at this time? Well, yeah, I almost said 12. Yeah, but it's the disciples actually number 120. You just read chapter 1, and, and, and we don't have time for that, but uh, it, that's who the they is referring to, this, this community of 120. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. And they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. And they began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now there were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. And when they heard this sound, a crowd came together in bewilderment because... One heard them speaking in his own language. And utterly amazed, they asked, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya, near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them declaring the wonders, I wish it was the better translation there, the works of God in our own, lang- in our own tongue. Amazed and perplexed, they ask one another, what does all this mean? Some, however, mocked them and said they have had too much wine. And then Peter. Come on. Two months ago, this guy's completely blowing it. And I think just that clause stood up. You're looking at a man raised up. Peter stood up with the eleven. He raised his voice and he addressed the crowd. Fellow Jews and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen to what I am about to say. And almost sense his authority. These men are not drunk as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. No, this is what was spoken to the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I will pour out my spirit on all people, your sons 
and your daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will all prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heaven above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and billows of smoke. The sun will be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the coming of the great and glorious day of the Lord. And everyone, and anyone, I don't care who you are, what you have done, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord to be saved. This is God's word. You may be seated. I want to just start with some background that I think is important. Just like last week, I asked what day is it. I want to ask that again. What day is it? It's Pentecost. How many of you just think this is the first Pentecost? I always did. It's not. In fact, there have probably been a thousand Pentecosts leading up to this one. Because Pentecost is one of the seven feasts that God instructed his people to celebrate. And it's one of the biggies. It's one of the three major feasts where God said, I want every male to present themselves before God at the temple in Jerusalem for this feast. And so I think that explains verse 5. There's a reason why there are God-fearing Jews from every nation under the sun in Jerusalem. Now, the biblical name for this feast is the Feast of Weeks. And you can read about this in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. Uh, the Hebrew word is the word Shavuot. Greek-speaking Jews called it Pentecost. Penta is the Greek word for what? Five. Pentagon. Um, Pentecost is the Greek word for 50, because God said, 50 days following Passover, I want you to celebrate Pentecost. Now this feast celebrated two significant things. First of all, it celebrated the upcoming harvest. This was a harvest feast. It marked the official beginning of the summer wheat harvest. And last week we learned that first fruits was also a harvest feast. First fruits was the celebration of the barley harvest. Pentecost is the celebration of the wheat harvest. Now, with this feast, God basically gave them two instructions. The first one was this. He wanted each family to present two loaves of bread in the temple. The reason for this is because this was their first fruits. In fact, nobody was allowed to eat of the harvest 
until these two loaves of bread were first presented. Because the first, whether it's animals, whether it's possessions, whether it's money, whether it's firstborn children, always belongs to God. The second thing God asked them to do is this. And this is Leviticus 23, verse 22. He says, as you harvest, don't cut the corners of your fields. Leave them for the poor and the alien. Now, even more than celebrating the wheat harvest, Pentecost also celebrated something monumental in their history, in their story, which is also our story. Does anybody know what that was? Does anybody know the first Pentecost? Does anybody know the first Passover? What happened? Firstborn, the lamb, uh, blood on the uh, doorway, and that's the night when God took them out of bondage, out of slavery in Egypt. He freed them. Fifty days after that, what happened? Piece this together just by looking at the text. Exodus 19 and 20, which I encourage all of you to read today. I'm not going to say this week. Go home and read it. Because Exodus 19 and 20 is when God gave the Torah, the five books, first five books of the, uh, of the Bible at Sinai. So Pentecost then is the day when every religious Jew went to Jerusalem, to temple, to celebrate God coming down on Mount Sinai and giving them Torah and the ministry of Torah. And when you read about this in Exodus 19 and 20, I mean, this thing is an awe-inspiring deal. Because the first Pentecost, God tells all the people, I want you to abstain from things. I want you to come in your Sunday best. I want you to be cleaned up. I want you to be dressed up. Why? Because I'm coming down. And we're going to have a wedding ceremony. And so the people do this. And they present themselves before Mount Sinai. And God comes down that day on Mount Sinai. In awesome fire and wind, and the mountain shook, and the people freaked out. You can read Exodus 20, uh, 18 through 21. Those people can hardly bear it. They can hardly stand in the presence of God. They, in fact, they say, we can't, we can't uh, bear the nearness of God and so they say to Moses, Moses, all right, you go up the mountain for us. And so Moses then goes up alone as their representative. And then Moses comes down the mountain with what? Ten Commandments. The law. Now, what happened this day is huge. Because 
This community is no longer a bunch of wandering Bedouins, but on this day, they become a nation, a kingdom. They become bride to the living God. They're a new humanity. They are a city on a hill. And so on the first Pentecost, what you have is this. You have a mountain resulting in a new ministry, which produces a new city, and that's the picture that we need to have. But this is only the first Pentecost, and all the Pentecosts following this one are only pointing to something better, something greater, a greater Pentecost. And that's what we have going in Acts 2. A new mountain resulting in a new ministry which produces a new city. And you read Acts 2, and one of the questions you should start with asking is just, what just happened? I mean, that's what the people are asking. It's like, what is going on here? Because you have the wind, the violent wind, as the text says. You have this massive fire that splits off and separates into tongues. And I think for us to best understand this, Let's just try to put ourselves in the disciples and, and, and just imagine what this would have been like. Because on one of the holiest days of the year, you probably have a million people packed into Jerusalem. And they're all making their way to temple for the morning service. You say, well, how do you know that detail? Well, what time is it? It's 9 a.m. 9 a.m. and 3 a.m. is when God's people gather in temple for worship. And where are the disciples? See, I always put them in the upper room. I don't have time this morning to explain that they're not in the upper room. They're at the house. The house. The big house. Not in Ann Arbor. The house. Of course they're at the house. That's what the, the temple is called. Even to this day, they call it the house on the mountain. And in my opinion, I just picture these guys, their hearts are just racing. I mean, just think about it. Think about it. They spent Three and a half years with Jesus. And Jesus dies. So they're depressed. Then he's raised. They're pumped. Then he spends 40 days with them teaching about the kingdom of God. And now all of a sudden it's all starting to make sense. Then he ascends to heaven. And he says he's going to come back. So you go to temple knowing that Jesus died on Passover, he was buried on unleavened bread, he was raised on first fruits, and you just know he's coming back today. Because he hasn't missed a holiday yet. And so, I mean, there's just like joy in their hearts. And I don't know if, if this happened or not, but maybe they were even in the temple enough to 
hear the temple service because on every Passover, the book of Ruth is read. And Exodus 19 and 20, God coming down in fire, God coming down in wind. Ezekiel 1 is read. Again, God coming down in fire, God coming down in wind, and the earth shook. And all of a sudden, it's happening. Fire. Wind. What's happening? God's coming down. In fact, it's more than this. That's the same way God moved into that temple. And it's the same way he's moving out. God just changed his address. He just moved from one house into another house. He just moved from the most spectacular edifice in all the world with white limestone and trimmed with gold. And God just said, I don't want to live in that temple anymore. I want to live in you. And in that moment, that community of believers became the mountain of the Lord. Every single believer became the mountain of meeting. Did anyone just faint? Did you faint when you first understood this reality? Why aren't we, why aren't we like, whoa! Why didn't someone just faint right now? I'll tell you why. It's because we have way too low a view of God. Of all the places God could live, of all the ways God could show the world what he has like, he has decided to live in us. We are the mountain of God. The writer of Hebrews picks up on this. He says this, You've not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, again referring to the first Pentecost, to darkness, gloom, and storm. That's not the kind of mountain. He says, But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. I think that's just awesome. And I think right now, if Moses were here, he would say, do you know what you've been offered? Because he would say, you know, this one who's in you, I couldn't even look at him. I had to be hidden in the cleft of the rock. This one who's in you, the people, even the priests, couldn't come near him. And when they did, they trembled. 
but he's in you. And that day, the whole world would travel to, to Jerusalem, sometimes thousands of miles, to find the presence of God. God now lives in us. As 2 Peter 1 verse 4 says, we are partakers, participants of the divine nature. So here's the question. Has Pentecost happened in your life? Has the living God come down in fire and wind and filled you? Has Pentecost happened in this community? Is the living God here right now amongst us? Now, fire and wind are, are interesting qualities. Because you can describe fire. You can dis- Actually, fire is a hard thing to describe. How do you describe it? Hot. Hot is something that we do what? We feel it. We experience it. What about uh What about wind? How do you describe wind? Can you see it? No, but you can feel it. And here we have a violent wind. So that means, man, that thing had some power. Well, here's a takeaway. And I don't want to reduce God to some emotional experience. But there is no way that the Spirit of God can be in your life and you not feel or experience something. Because the Spirit of God, He moves. For anyone here who was here last week for baptisms and saw Derek baptizing that guy when he got in the tank, he couldn't even say anything. Because he was just, he was so moved. Because he's been so moved by the Spirit of God. Don't stop seeking God until you know what this means. Because some of you said amen right away because you just know it. You know it. You've experienced him. It's more than just propositions that you put in your brain. Not less than, but so much more than. And maybe not everybody said amen because a lot of you are just Dutch and you don't say anything in church. Here we are. We are living in a world that desperately needs to know the presence and the power of God. Amen to that? Guess what? We're it. 
We are, says Paul, the temple. We will never shake the world unless we are first shaken. We will never be the city of God if we are not first the temple of God. And if Grand Rapids is going to know and experience the presence of God, it's going to be because they see and experience God in us. So not only are we the new mountain, but we have a new ministry. Verse 4. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues. Other tongues as the Spirit enabled him. Well, I could really start a good food fight right now, couldn't I? <laughs> Speaking in tongues in this text isn't some nonsensical gibberish. I'm not saying that people don't have a prayer language today. And I'll just tell you right now, I believe that to be biblical. I know that there are people in this church who have the gift of speaking in, in that kind of tongue. We have people on our staff that speak in that kind of tongue. I don't speak in that tongue, and I just want to say right now, I'm not even this much insecure about it. But I believe it to be true. And bless God for those who have the gift, but those of us who don't have the gift, let's be insecure about other things and not that thing. But this tongue that they're speaking in is language. It's, it's the language of the people there. And verse 11 says it. Everyone heard about the mighty wonders, the mighty works of God in their own language. Now here's the deal. We get so dialed into this tongues piece that we miss the larger thing going on. And it's this. They all began to speak. Not just the apostles, but all, all 120 disciples, men and women, all of them received the fire of God's presence, and now all of them are speaking gospel as the Spirit enabled them. Now contrast this with the first Pentecost where only Moses went up the mountain. And Moses went up that mountain that day as a priest, as a representative of all the people to stand before them in the presence of God. Oof, that points to someone else, doesn't it? A better Moses. And only Moses then came down that mountain and he came down that mountain as what? As a prophet, what does he have in his hand? The words of God. But Peter explains how now it's different. He says, no longer will there be one or two guys filled with the, with the presence of God to be prophets. Look at verse 17. It says, in the last days, God says... I will pour out my spirit on all people. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. 
Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my servants, both men and women, I will pour out my spirit in those days, and they will all prophesy. So everyone will be a prophet. Everyone will become a Moses. Everyone will become an Elijah. Everyone will be a Jeremiah. Because of the spirits and enabling, we are prophets to do the stuff of verse 8 and verse 11. Which is what? To declare the mighty works of God. All of us. Picking up on what Jesus said. Jesus said, you see John the Baptist? Let me tell you something about John. John was the greatest prophet in the history of the world, but I tell you the truth, he is the least in the kingdom of God. The least. The greatest prophet. The least. Here's my question as I read this this week. Do we want to apply this? Do we want to apply this to this community? Because if we do, it should sound the death to professional pastors and priests. It should sound the death of the personality-driven and the clergy-dependent churches. It should sound the death of this idea of a professional rank. And that the professionals are the be-all, end-all. There are no professionals here. I love John Piper's title of his book. Brothers, you are not professionals. We are all prophets. The only reason right now I'm perched up is so you can see me. You know where my heart is? My heart is that this community would so much understand what God has just given us and that we would live it out. And that my role, my role, my role would be simply to just be down on my knees and just pleading with God that he'd raise up a kingdom of priests and a kingdom of prophets. And we need to sound the death to the mega stage, the mega church, the mega pastor. That concept is so broken and it's reaping so much destruction on the church of God. It's killing us. It's killing our effectiveness. That's what I loved about Good Friday. I know some of you guys came and some of you loved it. And some of you like, wow, that was, that was awful. But you know what? You guys walked in here and, and, and then I walked in here and I, I, I loved it because I saw everybody. There are no chairs. The, thing, the stage was in the middle. There was no speakers or sound or anything like that. And hardly anybody knew what to do. 
And the reason is because we don't know what to do when there's not a chair to sit in. And rows. And a program. We didn't have that on Good Friday. And you know what happened as a result? Our awkwardness just slowly dissipated. And the community of Jesus learned to become one voice amongst the many voices. That's the church. I want to take this further. In the first Pentecost, what did God give? He gave the Torah. He gave law. What's the law? See, even, I don't have time to explain all of this, but I already said it. That was more than, okay, here are all your duties. Here are all these rules and commandments that you have to follow. Boy, that sounds really exciting, doesn't it? But the context in which God gave the, uh, the law, that was a marriage ceremony, and the law is simply the marriage vows. But the law is still what we must do. On Pentecost, in Acts chapter 2, what did God give? The Spirit. And the Spirit enables them to do one specific thing. What is it? To declare the mighty works of God. The Gospel. And where the law is about what we must do, the gospel tells, to, tells us we have nothing to offer God. There's nothing that we can do to earn God or to get God, but gospel says it is all about what God has done for us, in spite of us. It's not our mighty works. It's not us being mighty men and women. It's his mighty works. He's the mighty man. That's gospel. That's freedom. That's why Paul says, we don't go around preaching ourselves. We preach Christ. And this is our ministry right here. This is our ministry. It's to declare to the world the mighty works of God. And my question is, are you doing that? I mean, do you remember the disciples? I think it's in either Acts chapter 4 or 5. They're brought before the authorities. They might have already even been flogged. And, and, and finally the authorities tell them, listen to me. Stop this. Stop talking about Jesus. And what do they say? We can't shut up. We cannot not talk about him. All we can do is One of the clearest proofs of being filled with the Spirit is that you just can't stop declaring the mighty works of God. Now, when God gave the law, the first Pentecost, what happened? Well, as I stated, this was their wedding day. This is when they become God's bride. And what are they doing on their wedding day? They're in bed with another lover. They're already worshiping another idol. 
And what else happened that day? 3,000 people died. And I believe that to be a picture, ultimately. If the law is all that it is about, it will result in death. What happened on this Pentecost? It's harvest day. 3,000 people come to life. You tell me there isn't a God who's just orchestrating this awesome story. And then you go to places like 2 Corinthians 3, and Paul talks about this. Read it all, but I'll just tell you the little part there. Paul says this. The, the letter or the law, it does what? It kills. But the Spirit does what? Gives life. We are the mountain of God. And we have been given a new ministry. The gospel. One last point. Because of this, we are a new city. You really read about this in Acts 2, 42 through 47. Again, there's another great text to just read this week because I, I, I feel like right there is the blueprint for what we are to become. Yes, I know it's descriptive, but I also think it's prescriptive because in that one segment, Acts 2, 42 through 47, that is what the whole book of Acts is all about. And as much as I just bless God for this community, as much as I bless God for where we were and where, where we are and where we're going, I want to say this, is that we're not even close to this thing. In fact, I, I, I sometimes wonder if, if these guys from this Acts 2 would show up at our church today. I think they'd be like, what's going on here? Or just the church in general. And I think they'd be asking questions like, where's the fire of God? Where's the harvest of God? Where is it? Do we see harvest today? And here's the deal, if we want Pentecost to be a reality today as much as it was 2,000 years ago, if we want to be a people that want to reap a harvest, do we? And let's do what God asked them to do. What did God ask them to do to prepare for this harvest? Leviticus 23 and 22 says, don't cut the corners of there is not to be a poor person among you. And poor in the Bible is more than just being materially poor. Poor in the Bible is a person in chaos. So someone like Bill Gates could be considered poor. Now, this whole idea of not cutting the corners of your field. In that time, every family had about an acre to steward. And what would happen is, is at harvest time, when they, because they didn't cut the corners, it allowed for the poor and the stranger 
to harvest from another person's abundance with no loss of dignity. And I don't know why, but I, I, I love this because it means everyone could see how generous you were. Because all they had to do was look at your corners. Big field, small corner, you had a bad eye. You're stingy. Small field, big corner. And so God says, don't cut the corners of your field. So I apply that then to the Acts 2 Pentecost. And I ask myself, how is this being fulfilled in the ultimate Pentecost? Where are the uncut corners of the fields in this text? Where are they? I mean, it's so obvious. And the believers had everything in common and gave to each one as he had a need. There it is. Pentecost produced that. And that is at the heart of this new city. And you read just a couple of chapters later, which is maybe a couple weeks, couple of months, I don't know. But in Acts chapter 4 verse 31, it talks about how they're all together. And, and they're seeking God with all their heart. And they experience another Pentecost. The place is shaken. The people are filled with the Spirit. And then what? And there was not a need among them. Not a need. And commentators suggest this was so much more than physical and material. It was social. It was relational. It was, it was spiritual. Not a need among them. And so Pentecost not only produced a new ministry, it produced a whole new city, the kind of city the world has never seen. Because need is swallowed up, all of it. And Rome couldn't stand in the way. The gates of hell couldn't stand in the way. And this community and communities all over the world changed it. I got to believe all of us would love to be a part of a huge harvest. I mean, don't we dream of God using the church? I'm not talking about crossroads. I'm talking about the church of Jesus Christ as it exists in Grand Rapids and in the United States of America and all over the globe. I mean, don't we just dream of, of being a part of reaping this awesome harvest? But you know where I think we're blowing it? It's right here. Listen to me from a heart. The most fundamental mark of being filled with the Spirit, it's not speaking in tongues. It's not healings. It's not prophesy. The first mark of the Spirit, do you care for those in need? Do we? Do we really? And to say 
that we've been filled with the Spirit or that we're a Spirit-filled church or to say that I am the temple of God, that we are the temple of God and to have no corners or small corners of our fields, I think is an abomination. And so if you're asking today, how do we start to be the house in which the presence of the Almighty lives? We need to become a community where the poor, people in chaos, can harvest from our abundance. It gives me goosebumps to think that every Pentecost in temple, in synagogue, the book of Ruth is read. In fact, even now, there are some traditions where they will stay up the whole night just studying the book of Ruth. Who's Ruth? She's a poor stranger. And how does salvation come to Ruth? Obviously, it's from God, but it's through Boaz. And Boaz is a picture of what we are to God. We're, we're God's bride. And what God is to us, he's our bridegroom. And it's a picture of what we are to be to the world. A man who lets a poor woman harvest from his abundance. And then this book, it points to the ultimate redeemer. The one with ultimate riches. Who became ultimately poor for our sake. So that poor people, people in chaos like you and me, can harvest from the riches of God. Today we've carved out some space to respond to God. I don't know what to do. I'll be very honest. I don't. You can't program this. I feel like all we can do is what they did in Acts, and that is call upon his name. And for some of that, for some of us this morning, it, it might be as simple as, as just praying need and praying your need and blessing this community and giving this community an opportunity to at least hear your need so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and, and pour into that need. In fact, let's get this straight right now. Why do we feel this need to be more than people who are in need. Did that make sense? I'll explain it this way. What can we offer God? What? Righteousness? Goodness? Got all our ducks in a row? Is that what we offer God? I'll tell you, there's only one thing you and I can offer. A awesome, holy God who has it all. It's need. That's all we can give them is need. I need you. I'm desperate for you. I'm hungry for you. Maybe that's the best thing we can do today is just pray, need. And for some of you, you need Pentecost. Because all you've done is just settle for just a little God, thinking just a little God, I'll just keep God in his little corner as if that's enough. And I'm telling you, that's not what this thing is about.
You'll never experience Pentecost until you get hungry and thirsty for the living God. And baby, it's just, God, I want to want thee. Because I want to want thee. Create hunger in me to hunger after you. Maybe some of you come this morning, you're just lonely. You're with people, you're around people, but you're just alone. Pray your need. Maybe some of you are addicted. And you're just this deep into junk. Pray need. Maybe some of you need to be baptized and washed. Just come up here. Who cares what people think? Peter said, repent and be baptized. Do we want this or not? Let's pray. Let's stand. Loud and proud, whatever God's put on your heart, pray it out.